Thanks for downloading show 100 of the C-Suite podcast, the second of two episodes that we're recording in partnership with CFA UK with speakers from their FinTech Forum 2020. Uh, Now, as I explained in our previous show, the event itself was meant to have uh, taken place in London earlier in March. But as a precautionary measure to minimise the risk of the coronavirus, CFA UK took the decision to cancel the event. Uh, However, not letting COVID-19 beat the podcast, we agreed to go ahead and record all our interviews on online. Uh, My name is Russell Goldsmith and I'll be interviewing a number of the industry expert speakers who were due to present at the forum, which whilst tailored to the asset management sector, we're confident will be of interest to all listeners who are keen to understand how to stay ahead as financial technologies change. In that previous episode, Holly Black, Senior Editor of Morningstar, interviewed Richard Davis, Group Chief Operating Officer of Revolut, about the growth of the company. Uh, Plus we heard from other senior representatives from Moneyfold, Saracen and Partners and Refinitiv, on topics including blockchain and cryptocurrency, machine learning in practice, and working with fintech alliances. So lots to catch up on if you missed it. But before you do that, we've got more great interviews lined up on this episode. And so to kick things off, I'm thrilled to be joined online from his office in New York by Andrew Eisen, a global head of solutions for financial services at IHS Market. Andrew was due to give one of the opening talks at the forum titled New Opportunities and Age-Old Challenges. Thanks so much for joining us, Andrew. I thought we could start by flipping that title and perhaps you could outline what those age-old challenges are and why we still have them. Uh, thank you very much for having me today. And I would, in, in answer, there are really two big questions and they're both related to data. Do we have enough of the right data and do we have enough of the technology or the capacity or the tools to draw insights out of the, that data to make better business decisions? And when you look at the world of fintech, we're getting closer and closer to yes on both of those fronts. So if we started on the technology side um, and you think about the capacity and the growth of technology and the use of cloud for machine learning uh, and all of the tools, you've seen, according to that uh, Moore's law, the amount of capacity doubling every 18 months. And you look back to maybe where we were 50, 100 years ago, I like to use the story from the Vietnam War Operation Igloo White. In the middle of the Vietnam War, the U.S. government uh, needed to track the troop movements and supply chain of the Viet Cong to plan how to interrupt or take action on those movements. So what this operation was is they dropped sensors throughout the Ho Chi Minh Trail to pick up infrared and sonar for troop movements and supply chain, trucks, jeeps, that type of thing. Uh, So they distributed all these sonar sensors, dropped them from planes, used radio to connect all of these sensors and push them off to a bunch of uh, IBM mainframes with something like eight megabytes of RAM, which was huge in those days. And they did this over three years and they optimized their tactics to take advantage of what those sensors observed. What in those days that would cost somewhere along the lines of a billion dollars a year. Right, wow. Right, and you think about it today, eight megs of RAM, picking up a bunch of sensors on the Internet of Things, uh, one GE engine in an airplane has something like 3,000 sensors producing real-time information, and the cost of that could be measured in dollars, maybe even tens of dollars. Yeah, to operate. So you've got that scale, you've got that capacity, you've got that data collection. And then you look at digital media, internet, 
um, and all these other things, you've got copious amounts of data to make better decisions. And now you have, you look at that, that data ingestion, that capacity, and you think with compute and now, you know, you're on the verge of quantum computing becoming mainstream in the next five years, you've got the capacity to collect and analyze data. That's the physical side. If you look on the second part of the question, do we have the data? By most measures, the quantity of data that we are creating um, and ingesting and manufacturing through the digital age is doubling, I think it's every 18 months. So you've got a volume of data, whether it's satellite information, whether it's sensor data, the internet of things, uh, our sophistication of collection of data in our manufacturing or our data creation processes is just huge. Uh, you look at advents of open source technology, you're starting to see sharing of tools for the creation and collection of data, which just accelerates that. So we now have tons of data that we never had before that we're dealing with to ingest, matching that with the capacity to drive decision making. So I think on that side, the, those two questions are, yes, we have more data and we have more capacity to analyze that data. And in a fintech world, that means market participants can use more technology and more data to try and achieve operational alpha or investment alpha. So I know one of the things that you were going to focus on was around bias in decision making. We, I mean, that, that's something that we've recorded at, at previous uh, CFA events. In, in fact, if listeners want to go back through the archive on our on our last year's fintech forum and also uh, the behavioral finance conference too, um, which are. Shows seventy four and seventy nine actually. If you do a search on those, but um, what's your take on on how we mitigate against human bias in, in decision making? So, if we take that step back and we look at fintech and the data and the technology, the one thing that ties this together are the assumptions or the inputs that we as humans put into the process. There is an assumption, and and this was a question I would ask of the group. If you took a sampling of all the participants in the room and you said, how many of you think the financial markets are random? And then you take the other side of it and say, how many of you think they are not? And they follow some sort of pattern or some sort of uh, series of inputs to drive market activity. There is an assumption or a bias that's inserted in there. Once you decide the machine is either completely random or using data and technology, you can build a model that predicts it. And you think of those assumptions and you say, okay, anytime we appeal to that lizard brain, that gut, that hypothesis that says we assume or think there's a relationship between action and behavior, we are putting in bias into the machines, the tools we use. And I, uh, I was working with our chief data scientist, uh, Yakov Mutnikas. Um, he was telling me this story of, um, in the research that they do on bias, uh, they go back to Pavlov and, and essentially, you can train animals, in this case, he was referring to a study where you can train a chicken to be superstitious. And he's explaining to me how uh, the chickens in this random feeding uh, they will do a behavior, they'll hit the random feeding button, it will produce a pellet, they'll eat it, and then they'll reproduce the behavior they did before they press the button, thinking it has an impact 
on whether or not they get fed. And despite it being completely random, the chicken will start to be superstitious and recreate that pattern of behavior despite it having zero impact on the outcome. Yeah. And I thought this was a great story, right? So when you talk about the bias in the, in the, in the, in the model, we typically assume what good looks like for the data. Mm. We assume some of those, the assumptions or the hypotheses where there are relationships and often we'll code in particular in fintech or in particular when we're looking for those results, we will encode that behavior into the actual software processes we're running. Um, and what's fascinating about that is you start to get this collective bias where, and you look, I can refer to like long-term capital and the implosion that happened there, or you talk about groupthink going back in history with the Bay of Pigs and JFK. When you have a group of like people working together with a common set of assumptions, you actually can reinforce that bias in the tools and in the software. And that's where you start to see now in modern research that's showing that the diversity of the teams that come up and work together to build these tools will eliminate some of that risk for bias. Yeah. And I think that's really fascinating when you think of it from a data perspective, you know, what does good data look like? We all have opinions. And you talk about what goes into the models. Ultimately, the tools are there, um, but they all require human intervention to build them or use them. And that's probably an underinvested portion uh, in the market. And I really see that as being an interesting uh, input or evolution to this conversation of fintech and automation and machine learning and the nature of the space five years from now. Yeah. I mean, just as, as an aside, although it's, it's you know linked in terms of human behavior and, and bias, uh, and, and obviously I've got to be very sensitive about this, I'm, 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 you know, because of the seriousness of the situation. But, I'm, you know, obviously at the conference was canceled due to the, you know, the coronavirus for, for all the right right reasons. But you're seeing some, in terms of human behavior and, and, and people following the crowds, you know, these this panic buying of on of, of all things toilet paper, which I, I, I'm still confused about. And then you've got everyone wearing these face masks, which don't necessarily, you know, do anything anyway. And, you know, but, but this is a, you know, you're seeing this people following the crowd and, and panicking into certain types of behavior. Is that something you can reflect on in terms of what you do? Well, absolutely. Um, if you think about this mass panic behavior in social media and fear, is, is it really driving decision-making despite having valid data or facts behind it? And you even see it with fake news, and it's, it's kind of been building throughout the last few cycles where we make decisions despite having factual evidence otherwise. And I, I rode the subway into work today and, you know, uh, my wife and I have now started the, the capita account of how many people per capita on a subway train, how many masks do you see? Right. And we were commenting on how it was one in a hundred two weeks ago. It was one in 50 last week. And now one out of roughly every 25 people we see are wearing these masks. And when you read the research and you read the, the, the doctor's reports, they all tell you that the effectiveness of these masks is questionable, uh, especially in tubes or subways. Mm. 
Um, however, again, if you tie back to that bias, that lizard brain going back to our emotions and instincts, that actually is what it appeals to. And that will cause us to make decisions that otherwise would not be considered rational. Sure. And so again, you know, is that random? Can you model that? Well, at scale, if you use probabilistic models, I am sure uh, you could predict some of this behavior. But you start to think about um, using these probabilistic models on climate change, on environmental impact, on all sorts of these social aspects. And it, there are models that can help you predict some of these human behaviors at scale. And it's just whether or not we choose to listen to them. Yeah. Well, well let's bring it back to, um, obviously, the topic of fintech. I mean, how does this all fit in your day-to-day work then? Well, there's a couple aspects. So I look at it as operational alpha, which is how do you use the data, the tools and the capacity to make better business decisions on how you run your business? Um, and, you know, I'm, I've seen uh, I'm working with some of the major banks and major financial institutions that have very large footprints that just uh, I'll use an IT example, predicting failure in operational um, systems. Uh, if you look at any complex technical working environment, there could be millions of alerts, millions of data points being collected from systems that are core to your trading or operational infrastructure. You can now uh, collect all of that operational data and start to analyze it for predictive analytics of pre-failure conditions, a particular server, a particular system, as memory spikes or network traffic spikes, uh, the probability of failure goes much higher. So let's dynamically reroute traffic or balance those workloads a little smarter so that we don't put that system under stress so it doesn't fail and we don't have a market condition. So that's a very tech-focused example, but you can see that in all aspects of how people do business, whether it's optimizing client relationships, outreach, compliance, uh, fraud, um, you're starting to see all of these tools come in, analyze the data, which again ties you to, do you have enough of the data and how do you make sure it's clean or good? And then on the uh, operational, or sorry, on the investment side of FinTech, you're seeing a huge investment in using those tools and technology and that data to find alpha. And one of the most interesting things we see as IHS market is you're seeing that because of the depth and breadth of content that's available, you're seeing the ingestion of what some people call alternative data sets into those investment decision-making processes. And what's fascinating about alternative data is a lot of it isn't alternative to the primary consumers. So when you look at oil production data, oil well production data, one of our businesses happens to collect and track oil production data for over 450,000 oil wells globally. And you think that's really interesting data if you're an energy company or you're a prospector or you're a, an oil drilling firm. That's fantastic. And then you look at uh, ships at sea. We have GPS data of almost every ship on the planet over 100 tons with their cargo manifests. And a large number of those are oil tankers. And then all of a sudden you can start to combine oil production data, oil supply data in regional locations and ports, you know, 
uh, use satellite imagery to track supply data in those open wells or open uh, uh, storage containers, you start to see how, how much supply is at sea at any given point in time. And all of a sudden you can start to model uh, supply impacts when there are dramatic changes in supply and ships get diverted to move that supply to where the best price may be paid at that particular moment in time. And then all of a sudden you have an investment thesis that can drive uh, not just what stocks to buy, but okay, what, what's the risk of a, a credit event? Where do I have supply chain risk? Where do I have uh, refiner capacity? And your, the inputs into your decision-making process suddenly get a lot more sophisticated than perhaps what was available five years ago or 10 years ago. And that's really where you see how it impacts what we do today as a business. Because people are taking all of these diverse data sets and ingesting them at scale to drive business decisions. And we're seeing that in the front office, we're seeing that in the middle office, and we're seeing that in the back office. Well, that's a nice lead actually into the next interview I'm going to be doing because I'm going to be speaking to Rehan Islam and uh, Raj Gupta about alt data. But um, just finishing this off then, I'm going back to the title of your talk. What about those new opportunities then? What developments are we going to see in this space over the coming years? Well, I think we're looking across the alternative data sets and saying, okay, so on the investment models, there's some real opportunities on uh, building better portfolio risk management, better portfolio risk uh, capabilities to understand the relationships between content or data that you haven't seen before and your underlying portfolio. Uh, the second one where we're seeing a huge amount of investment is the ESG space. And where we're particularly excited in doing some thought leading work and real thought leadership is modeling climate and climate risk into your portfolio. So how do you collect all of the information or as much information as you can at climate risk, climate change, uh, climate events? And what is the downstream risk to your portfolio? So you have a volatility risk, you have all of these types of things. Now, how would you model and use and benchmark and analyze climate risk as an extension of your investment thesis? And then when you talk about climate risk, it's not just on an investment thesis as a fintech or an asset owner or asset manager. If you start to go into other industries, you can start to use climate risk to drive your decision making on where do you invest capital? Where do you build your plants? Where do you build your machines? How do you line up your supply chain? And that's really where we see a fantastic opportunity in the space to, to now ingest all of this data that, that you couldn't get before uh, and combine it with that compute and leverage those those capabilities on models and data science to really understand a whole new facet that's very relevant. And, I, and I'll say this going back to our lizard brain and fear. We've all seen these pictures of climate change and the Big Ben underwater. And, you know, that, that scene from, from Venice where everything's flooded and they're saying, is this the end? Well, imagine having the capability to model that risk and instead of it appealing to fear, optimizing your capital and decisions based on those outcomes. 
So that's the part that's most exciting is understanding and modeling this topic, really climate risk uh, as a profession or as a discipline to help drive portfolio optimization. Andrew, that's a, a brilliant um, start to this episode of the podcast. Thank you so much for all that and um, appreciate you joining the show. Thank you for having me. So I'm now joined by two speakers who were due to take part on a panel about alternative data. Uh, firstly, we have Rehan Islam, an independent fintech consultant who up until recently headed up the innovation unit at one of the leading global active asset managers, uh, Janus Henderson Investors, uh, where his role was to bring emerging technology solutions into the firm. And with him is Raj Gupta, lead data scientist at Location Sciences, an independent third-party data intelligence company uh, that verifies the accuracy and quality of location data used in industries such as proximity targeted advertising. Uh, Rehan, probably the best place to start is to understand the type of data sets you include when discussing alternative data. Sure. Uh, thanks for having me here. So first of all, alternative data, it's a term used in financial markets primarily. So traditionally, investors use have used market data, prices, volumes, revenues, earnings, uh, those kind of conventional metrics when making investment decisions. Uh, over the over the last decade or so, as advances in technology have led to new sources of data, that's led to this new category uh, of alternative data, which can supplement your investment analysis. Uh, and, uh, one point to note is that what what's called alternative data today will probably be standard data in five years' time. So it's a shifting boundary. So it includes data sets uh, like uh, sentiment analysis of companies from social media and the web. Uh, it can include satellite imagery of uh, supply chains and crop fields. Uh, it can include geolocation data from apps or transaction data from email receipts or debit cards. Uh, so wh wherever uh, you're finding these new data sets, which can help investors get some insights uh, in, in making decisions. And Raj, how, how clean does that data need to be? Uh, that's an interesting question. Just as a very brief background, in our specific case at Location Sciences, we provide uh, store visitation data for most uh, FTSE retail tickers, data which is used by fundamental investors looking at all data to support their investment hypotheses and also by quant funds looking for non-market generated features to, to improve the accuracy of their trading models. Now, the buy side typically wants data sets to be as structured as possible. Uh, the danger is that data providers not aware of the of the nuances of the financial markets would filter out signal in the process of noise elimination for example in location data and indiscriminate filtering by speed or dwell can lead to information being thrown out and Rehan, what what about in terms of uh, how the regulation impacts on the on the use of these data sets uh, yeah, so uh, I mean, the elephant in the room is uh, obviously GDPR. So whenever you can identify a person, uh, that's not allowed. Uh, so, you know, Europe's uh, quite a, ahead of the game in terms of regulating what companies can do with data. Uh, typically, uh, data is, or not typically, but in a lot of circumstances, data is collected for one use and sold on to investors. So this can raise issues if people start to feel uncomfortable. Uh, so uh, just to take a random example, like you could have a money management app that could uh, then sell on uh, data on uh, what people are spending on. And you know maybe those people didn't realize this because they didn't go through the terms and conditions. 
So you can think of examples like that where you can see alternative data vendors getting a bit you know, cl close to the boundary. Uh, in, in other cases, some companies started off as uh, just providing business intelligence uh, for industries. So it could be like market share for uh, any industry, like airlines or something. Uh, and, and then later, they've shifted on to providing the same data to investors. Um, so if you start collecting data with one use in mind, and now you have another use in mind, uh, that can, again, raise some questions on what you're doing with the data and whether that's uh, allowed or not. You can also have some gray area where uh, maybe you're, you're not identifying people in the data, but based on things like location and activity, you can maybe reverse engineer uh, personally identifiable data. And so that, that can lead to, to issues as well. So uh, I, I imagine regulation will uh, become stricter as this uh, area grows. And you know, one point to note is that a lot of uh, alternative data vendors now have compliance officers because they do understand this. Well, we're just picking up on that point, actually. I mean, Raj, what, what's your thoughts in terms of specific regulations around alt data in the future? Well, um, I really can't comment on specific regulations, but we do know that um, GDPR, as Rihan was mentioning, is, is pretty serious about the privacy rights of EU citizens and the, and the concept of PII, uh, the personally identifiable information that is certainly likely to evolve over time for example in the location space where i work um, all data that's collected it must be properly consented opted in and uh, anonymized before the data sets uh, can be generated for the buy, for the buy side i see vendor due diligence becoming more and more stringent as as all data goes mainstream um Rehan, before moving into the fintech space, you started your career as a trader, so I'm guessing you've got plenty of experience of the need for making data more actionable. What, what's your thoughts on all that? Yeah, uh, I think v vendors need to find a way to make their offering fit with the investment process uh, of the investors they're selling to. So, and they, and they also need to to do more to help investors identify the signals in this data. So, if we just take a step back. Uh, and, and ask what are investors looking for uh, in alternative data? So the first question is, is there an investment signal on a particular asset they're looking at? Secondly, is that signal priced in? Because if it's already priced in, it's not that useful. And thirdly, what's the time frame of that signal, right? So if it's uh, only giving you like uh, a half an hour advantage on something, for a lot of long-term investors, uh, that doesn't really move the needle for them. Uh, so vendors need to help investors answer these questions. Also, how do you use these data sets in conjunction with other data sets? So if you find positive sentiment on social media about a company, uh, but then their earnings projections by analysts are down, what, what does that mean? Right? When is the, the social media angle relevant? So neither vendors nor investors are experts at combining these two different areas. So both need, both need to learn about the other side. And so one, one uh, point I'll make here is that there is a difference between uh, how systematic investors and how fundamental investors use alternative data. So for systematic investors, they're quite used to uh, looking at loads of different data sets and making you know small bets across a range of different signals that they find in these. Whereas for fundamental investors, they haven't historically done things in a very quantitative way. So it may be much harder for them to find how, do, how does alternative data fit into their process. 
Yeah, I totally agree with what, what Rehan said. In fact, in our experience working with location data, we, we, we find fundamental investors um, looking at all data sets to, to support their investment hypotheses as opposed to sort of basing their hypotheses on this kind of data. We also find a lot of quant funds looking for our kind of data sets to, to improve the accuracy of their trading model. So effectively, the data becomes, visitation data becomes a feature to be, to be added onto their models to make predictions better, in a way. Well, well, sticking with you, Raj, I mean, obviously data has no value unless you can interpret it. I'm keen to understand any challenges you've faced in, in building models to draw conclusions from data sets. Yes, of course. Uh, all data is typically not as clean as market data. So we do, we do have to do a fair amount of wrangling to, before something useful can be generated. For example, in the case of location signals, we, we typically would use a speed filter to eliminate people driving, driving by past a store. We would build dwell distributions, that is time spent in a store, and then calibrate them with similar stores. Then we would use third-party data sets like transaction data to create truth sets. We'd use sentiment analysis to understand context, etc. So the thing is that all these data sets are typically very unstructured, and, and I would think that data cleaning, in my experience, has been around 60 to 70% of the job. That's great. Okay, um, just to finish off, um, keen to get a you know, very quick comment from both of you, because there's, there's obviously a growing interest in ESG, given the you know, current global environment crisis. And of course, CFA UK launched their, their own certificate in ESG investing just last year. How can we use alt data to generate insights into alt data investments? Rehan, let's come to you first on that. Uh, yeah, so th- th- there are a lot of vendors focused on this space. Um, uh, in particular, when uh, different ESG ratings say different things, uh, how to make sense of them. Uh, and you know, one answer can be find alternative data sources. Um, so I, I remember uh, coming across one example where two different ratings uh, on Tesla, the, two different ESG ratings on Tesla were given where one was zero and one was 100. And the reason was because one was just looking at the Tesla's activities itself and the other was looking at uh, where the batteries go and where they come from and the kind of wider societal impact, right? So uh, so that's, that's another question, like how broad do you go when looking uh, at the impact? And the more broad you want to go, uh, the more you scope there is for looking at alternative data sets. So you're looking at um, you know social media data or uh, Internet of Things sensors, um, it, you know to find to find the ESG impact as as, as broad as you want to go. Excellent. And and Raj, your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, once again, I have to come from a location data perspective because that being my specialty, we. We are doing a lot of work on footfall trends into sustainable and socially conscious stores and brands. And they, we find, are a leading indicator. These footfall trends, we find, are a leading indicator for the uh, financial KPIs of these, of these stores and brands. We also look into the demographics of the people who actually visit uh, these stores, the distance they travel to get to those stores and various other brands and stores that they visit. And that together with data from social media and other sources, and you start getting a picture of what the audience looks like and how it's evolving over time, which I think could be of great value to investors in this area. Definitely. Well, um, we've covered loads of, uh, of info there. So honestly, thank you so much, uh, both of you, for uh, joining me online together uh, for this interview. Um, but for now, uh, Rehan Islam and uh, Raj Gupta, thanks for joining the podcast. Thank you very much. Great. Thanks.
You're listening to the C-Suite Podcast. To listen to all previous shows in the series, you can either visit csuitepodcast.com, follow us on SoundCloud, or subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, or in any one of your favorite podcast apps. Please do give us a positive rating and review when you do. So I'm joined now by Stacey English, Chief Digital Officer at the regulatory risk intelligence provider Corelytics. Stacey was due to talk about the future of RegTech, so perhaps the best place to start is to get a quick understanding of what RegTech covers exactly. So RegTech is a very specific subset of fintech. Um, And whilst there isn't a universally agreed definition, um, it's essentially technology that enables firms to meet their regulatory obligations much more effectively and efficiently than existing capabilities and how they do things today. Now, that said, technology to support compliance, and and some of these aspects have been around for decades. But the RegTech we're seeing evolve now is able to leverage a whole range of innovative technologies um, and tools such as artificial intelligence and analytics through to things like APIs and the cloud. And the reason it's becoming so important is simply because of the volume and pace of regulatory change that firms need to comply with. There are now vast amounts of data, information and regulations um, that firms need to comply with. We know that regulators are publishing at least 57,000 alerts a year, and that equates to over 220 publications every single day, all of which firms need to be aware of, to review um, and implement where relevant. Now, at the same time, the consequences of non-compliance and getting things wrong have increased. At Colitics, we've tracked an increase in global enforcement activity over the last year. And in the last five years alone, there's been more than $90 billion worth of monetary fines levied. Add to that, around the world, we're seeing um, all sorts of individual accountability regimes being implemented. So the personal liability is increasing too. So it's a very, very challenging uh, regulatory environment firms are working in. And unsurprisingly, they and their senior managers are looking for help to do things much better. So that's really interesting, Stacey. So can you talk through some of the really specific areas where, where this is helping? So we know firms have been um, increasing the size of their compliance teams and budgets year on year, and that just isn't sustainable from um, either a cost or a recruitment point of view. So what firms are looking for help with is automating manual tasks so they can free up their valuable and skilled compliance and risk resources to actually focus on much more value-added things like um, advising the business and ensuring that their customers are protected. And we're also seeing great demand for insight and metrics. So we know that the volumes and complexity of information that's being generated by regulators is outstripping the capacity of, of human teams to interpret it. So firms are actually looking for help getting those um, analytics and measures that tells them which regulatory risks they should prioritise, where they're most exposed um, and what's relevant to their business. This demand that we're seeing is is coming from firms right around the world for help in meeting those applications. And we're also seeing regulators encouraging their firms to adopt RegTech. For example, one of the Australian regulators has recently um, said that there's becoming a tipping point where those firms that don't invest in RegTech research and development are actually going to be at a disadvantage in the long run. I appreciate you probably can't name you know specific companies uh, company names, but are you able to share some examples of how Corelytics is actually providing regulatory risk intelligence for your clients? 
Absolutely. So we do a lot of work for customers to structure regulation, which in its simplest form means adding tags and taxonomies, which we can then use to map rules to a firm's own entity and risk frameworks. Now, in practice, that means that firms can automate manual processes, which otherwise might require them to have teams of hundreds of staff filter out regulatory rules and updates to determine which are relevant um, and where they need to be directed to. The other thing uh, we can do is risk rate regulation. So we have a, a single source of global enforcement activity, which we can then extract insight and anal analytics. For example, you know, the relative risk of rules and regulations, we can quantify the impact of breaches and identify which control breakdowns lead to those breaches. So this enables firms to you know, determine where they're most exposed based on the type of business they are, whether they're an insurer, a bank, an asset manager, which jurisdictions they operate in and which products they sell and service lines they operate in. Um, and that helps them to demonstrate to regulators that look, they're learning the lessons from the peer, their peers in the industry and also that they're focusing their compliance, monitoring and insurance activities on the greatest areas of risk to their business. Uh, we also provide visualization, which in practice means that there are heat maps and graphs and metrics, which actually physically show areas of risk and exposure. And that's really helpful for actually seeing where to focus and where to prioritize. Your, your company was only established in 2013, so I can only assume you've clearly spotted and, and taken full advantage of, of the growth in RegTech in that time. But what about the future? What's next for RegTech? Well, from very early on, we've been lucky enough to have the opportunity to, to work with regulators, including the FCA. Things like tag their rule books, help structure their um, regulation to make it more usable and machine readable. And this is all helping with things like digital reporting and updating policies. But as we start to see the firms benefit from all of that automation, I think there's going to be much more demand for uh, prediction and to see what emerging risks lie ahead. Ultimately, I expect it will become the norm for RegTech to be in place to support compliance teams do their jobs. But I also anticipate that the skills needed in those compliance teams is going to change too. Whilst we, we don't expect or need compliance officers to become developers or coders, they are going to need to have the confidence to work with new tools and technology. For example, at Qualitics, our legal experts sit alongside developers and they all have the opportunity to code because there really is a recognition that in the longer term, practitioners are not just going to need to be experts in the, in the technical detail of rules and regulations. They are going to need to understand things like analytics, artificial intelligence and red tech so that they themselves can provide guidance to their business and, and get the most benefit out of the tools that are there. I also think we're going to see a growing use of another subset of um, fintech and reg tech, which is soup tech, and that's specifically designed to help the regulators themselves to be more effective in supervising the industry, because regulators themselves face the same sorts of challenges. They've got growing um, volumes of data being generated. They've also got their own uh, resource limitations. So um, these are all very exciting times for uh, reg tech and for helping compliance teams to, to be more effective but you know, it doesn't come without challenges there will be challenges around implementation um, as with all technology and in this instance explainability and auditability are key because we've been through a financial crisis where basing decisions on models that haven't been well understood 
you know, has, has demonstrated you know, the, the problems that can cause. So being able to look inside these tools, being able to explain the results and how decisions have been made is going to be absolutely critical for regulators, auditors and the boards. And of course, with any technology, never far from the headlines is all the risks around data security and you know, cyber resilience and that sort of thing. So these are all operational risks that firms are going to just need to make sure that are, are managed. That's brilliant. Thanks so much for that, Stacey. My pleasure. Thanks, Russ. So I'm now joined by Bart Van Haren, founder of the wealth management company InvestSuite. Uh, Bart was going to be speaking about the emerging ecosystems in wealth management. Uh, so welcome to the podcast, Bart. Can we start by quickly setting the scene by getting an overview of the kind of businesses you support? Yeah, thanks, Russell. And uh, thanks for having me. So we are operating in the wealth management space as a pure B2B player. That means we don't go to the end customer directly, but our customers are financial institutions like retail banks, brokers, wealth managers, uh, and then private banks. And we really try to help them in their own digital wealth transformation uh, journeys. Uh, they're under threat by uh, fintechs. They are subject to a lot of regulatory changes and uh, margin pressure. Uh, so that's a very um, a hard environment. And we try to help them in that journey by offering them solutions, allowing them to go to the market quicker and cheaper and hopefully adding some extra expertise as well. And, and as I mentioned, your, your talk was about emerging ecosystems. But where were you hoping to start with that? Yeah, so I was going to uh, paint a picture of a rapidly changing uh, environment. Up to two years ago, maybe a lot of things were business as usual. What you see today are huge pressures and uh, you're seeing a lot of uh, players embarking on their wealth transformation journey. And one thing that I wanted to talk about was the uh, changing ecosystem or even the emergence of a new ecosystem. And that's an ecosystem consisting of the following participants. Of course, the, the private banks or the banks themselves. Secondly, uh, core banking platform providers, IT providers, and those were there before. But what is new, in my view, is um, the addition of fintechs in that space. And that's all possible because of open banking, because of APIs. And that's truly quite different than, than a few years ago. Add to that implementation consultants. And you see this new uh, ecosystem of players which uh, were not even there three, four years ago. And any specific technologies that are coming into play at all? Right. So I think in, in financial institutions and wealth management, I uh, think that in particular, uh, AI and machine learning are of relevance and significance. Um, so that's an area where uh, a lot of fintechs, B2B fintechs, can add value. That can range from KYC, fraud detection, uh, but also uh, purely in the heart of what they do, i.e. fund construction and portfolio construction, where uh, quant tools and AI tools uh, can enter the game. And that's really about leveraging uh, significant advances in computational theory, in mathematical optimization theory, in portfolio construction theory. So that's that's uh, the background. And just to give you uh, one or two examples, uh, are let's take the fund management industry, where a lot of uh, players use a fundamental approach, i.e. they work with a universe of stocks or other instruments and based upon that universe, they construct a fund. And this is a very good example where the two can merge because the financial or private banker can still uh, use their traditional methods to come up with a universe of 
individual stocks or other instruments, and then apply new insights, uh, quant approaches to optimize, to construct the fund, for instance, to uh, uh, apply a scientific method to uh, construct the right weights. So fund construction is a great example where old and new merge, where you uh, bring the best of both worlds together, i.e. the uh, fundamental approach with a quant approach leveraging AI. Another example are private banks where they see that for a certain type of clientele uh, with lesser and the lower side, the assets under management, it becomes hard to make that profitable. And so some of the uh, models they contemplate is to create um, solutions whereby they can leverage their brand name, where they can still uh, offer a sort of hybrid uh, solution, i.e. the client knows there's a human being behind it, but where they merge their traditional approach with new digital tools, uh, allowing their clients to uh, to have all the digital access which they would have with a fintech, and even uh, going a step further because they can offer the trust of the brand and possibility to talk with a real human being if needed. And that's another example um, of such an ecosystem where you have the private bank, a number of fintechs, not, not the one, you can have fintechs covering KYC, as I mentioned before, uh, fintechs who do the uh, portfolio construction, and the third uh, uh, stakeholder, i.e. the core banking platform or IT providers. So you create this ecosystem consisting of a number of fintechs offering high-end solutions with the private bank uh, and their uh, decades long of expertise and the core banking platform provider allowing all these things to be processed very well in an automated way. So what about the future then? How do you see things developing over, say, the next sort of five years? I think it will be the future will look different for, for, for private banks versus financial institutions. If we take a step back and we look at five, ten years ago, I think very few private banks were actively uh, searching for, for digital solutions. That all changed, uh, let's say, five years ago, where they realized that the uh, traditional method of only having human interactions is, is likely not enough. Uh, so now we are for being some kind of discovery transition period. Some players are already a bit more advanced. Uh, some others are actively exploring. And I think all that exploration will lead in the coming five years to a situation where uh, private banks will uh, be more in a hybrid mode, where they will still leverage all uh, what they're good in, but where they add a completely new digital experience to their customers, where they use AI and other quant methods to uh, uh, further improve or leverage their uh, portfolio advice and portfolio construction methods. And very, very importantly, where they go even a step further in digitalizing and automating their, their, their backend. Uh, quite a few private banks already work with uh, core, banking system, uh, core banking systems and portfolio management systems, but uh, research has shown that the cost income of private banks is, is still on the high side. So they can attack that by a lowering the costs by further uh, automating uh, processes, uh, the client onboarding system, compliance system. So I think that's a huge area where they can automate and, and do cost reduction. But then also on the on the front-end side, if you wish, by uh, uh, offering digital solutions for a certain segment of their clients, they can take in more clients per advisor and as such uh, aim to enhance the revenues. And I think so that's like a double, uh, double uh, strategy, if you wish. On the one hand, keep automating and uh, processes and, and reducing costs, not only on the pure processing side, but also on the KYC side and onboarding side. And on the other hand, aiming to provide 
for certain type of their clientele, a digital experience and allowing their advisors to handle more uh, clients per advisor, if you wish. But I think that private banks, um, the traditional model will still exist for quite a while because uh, very high uh, added value services like tax advice, uh, advice around art, investments, and so forth are, are very complex on the one hand. And second, for very high uh, investments above 5 million, 10 million, a personal relationship uh, is, is super important. So I think we will go from this purely um, or, or traditionally human approach towards one where they're going to go in a hybrid mode and where they're going to work on further lowering the costs on the, on the backend side a and B on uh, trying to find new new revenue sources or have more clients that they can handle per, per advisor. There's quite a lot there for listeners to take in, Bar. If they want to understand more about the emerging ecosystems in wealth management, where's the best place for them to go? Well, I think there are a couple of places. Uh, one is I think that some of the traditional management consultants are, are painting uh, very good pictures about uh, the state of the industry. For instance, KPMG Luxembourg issued a report on private banking in Luxembourg. Also, McKinsey about private the, the state of the universe uh, with respect to private banks. So I think these are interesting sources. I think a second interesting source are all the events. Uh, there are quite a few very specific events on trends in wealth management uh, in, in various countries. So these conferences are a good means, in my view, to see what's going on uh, in the world. And thirdly, to uh, scan what uh, a number of the leading players are doing, and that with three angles, leading players in private banking, uh, fintechs active in uh, wealth management private banking, and third, what a number of um, core banking platform providers like Avlock uh, are doing in that space because they follow this market very closely and issue uh, trend reports on it. So, And they will also organize conferences and events. So I think these are the places to go. Be curious, look uh, look outward i would say um so i hope that can help fantastic well thanks for that bart and um once again appreciate you joining the podcast thank you and so we come to our final guest of these two fintech episodes for cfa uk and so i'm now joined by tom mcgillicuddy co-founder of the impact investment app ticker which he launched about 12 months ago Uh, tom do you want to start by telling us a little background to ticker and why you thought there was a need for a new app yeah, so um, the business was founded by myself and, and Matt Laid, and we spent eight, nine years working in the investment management industry. And um, the latter half of that time, I spent working at Wellington Management, and I was in the uh, impact investment team. And um, we were investing money on behalf of pension funds and um, you know family offices and, and wealth managers around the world. But there was just no way for Matt and me to invest our money in the way that we were doing in our, in our day job. So that was like the first trigger point where we thought there was something to build, because we knew the themes around impact investing appealed even more so to our generation, the people that really want to impact the climate or a social issue that they, that, that they really care about. And then the more we started to shop the idea around our, our family and friends who didn't work in the industry, they said that, well, if this was available, I'd invest for the first time because I feel like I understand it. So we thought there was a real powerful opportunity to bring this form of investing to a mass market because of the themes and the framing and the narrative around it. And then not only drive more money and attention towards impact investing, which is one angle to our, to our impact as a company, but get people to invest for their own future, people that have never done it and one would have never done it before. So it's like a financial inclusion issue in itself. So we see there was two main needs there for us, um, for us to try and crack. So that's what we've been doing for the past year and a bit. Sure. So 12 months since launch, what, what's been the response so far? 
It's been good. I mean, you know, tens of thousands of users in the UK now, you know, approaching 50,000 users 12 months after launch, which is like a, a bit ahead of schedule. And the demographic is exactly what we'd hoped. It was, you know, it's 85% first time investors, average age 31, investing about £2,000 a year each and 50 uh, 50 gender split. So the market that we thought was there or could have been there is kind of proven out. And the best telling of the response is we do an event or we do two events a month at our offices um, for users to come along. And um, the max capacity is about 150. So we get 150 every time. We get like a 500 registered for the events that we have to turn away. And they come to learn about investing and they come to learn about impact and learn about us. And, you know, we were, it wasn't designed to be, to, to, to be for this, but they've been the best like um, user feedback, such as, uh, user feedback sessions that we could have hoped for. Uh, everyone comes with an idea. Everyone comes with a, with a story to tell. And um, that's been the best part for us because as, as a digital business, we have to create situations to meet our users because we're not selling a physical product in a store where we can get that from them. So having these community events has been fantastic. So we get to meet the people that are using the product and learn about what they like, what they don't like, and, and what, the, what they're investing for and how they see their future. And those have been, that's been the, the best kind of insight into you know, how people receive us and how big this could be. And what about the challenges then since you've um, you know, launched? What, what have been some of the biggest challenges you've had to overcome as, you know, as you've grown the business to where you've got to now? There's a, there's, a, there's a million things I could talk about. Um, Matt and I call this, it's actually one of our friend's phrases, he's got a different startup. We call it good hour, bad hour. So there's just extremely good news and bad news every single minute. Yeah. Basically. So you have to get used to that roller coaster and manage yourself. So man, managing myself, learning to manage this level of activity and, and stress. And every single month, the business, if you think about it, effectively increases by 30, 40, 50% in size. So it doubles every two or three months. So the skills you need in, in yourself and in the team change constantly. And you have to grow. Obviously, we have no choice but to grow uh, with the organization. But then the team has to grow too. Not everyone wants to work in that environment. And people have to continually learn and upskill every single minute of every day. There's never a sense that we've done anything. Um, there's a constantly shifting expectation and goalposts. So all the challenges surrounding that um, uh, have been the thing that comes to mind when I think about the biggest challenge. It's just the, the pace of change. Yeah, and and what about in terms of resource then? Because I, I obviously I had a look at the the app on on, on I'm on Android, and yeah. so you look through some of the the comments, and and this is no criticism of you. This is with any app when it starts. There's always going to be teasing, you know, teething problems, and yeah. and some people will say, oh, this bit didn't work, or I, you know, I noticed some saying, can you tell us where the where the investment's going? But obviously, as you as you keep growing that that audience and yeah. the users, then, then I'm assuming you're going to get, you know, obviously as much, you know, as much growth in terms of the feedback and the comments that you have to respond to. So how, how are you, you know, delivering that? Yeah, I think, I think the Reed Hoffman, uh, I'm going to butcher this, this phrase, but <laughs> you're jumping out of the plane and trying to build a parachute on the way down is basically what you do, is what you've done basically. Yeah. So we, we knew, we know there's, there's a million things that are lacking in the product. Um, but there's like a hierarchy of things that we need to achieve, uh, or get done. And, and, and um, we choose to let fires burn, basically, we have to. So we have to prioritize what to fix and when and create an experience that ticks a lot of the fundamental basic boxes, but also positions us for growth and looks nice and all those kind of things. So we've been very fortunate to hire a couple of amazing like customer services representatives in, in Liverpool, Tom and, and Lauren, who have changed one-star reviews into five stars in the, in, the, in the app stores and the play stores. So that's how we've combated some of the features in the app not being 
you know, it's still very much version one of the product. You know, ten years time, the product will look so different that well, there'll be there'll be different complaints at that point in time, no doubt. But uh, we have to just combat it in any way, any way or shape we can, whilst continuing to show good growth. So we have to continue to grow and hit our targets, and understand that um, fires will burn, and we need to prioritize which ones to put out. And so, what about the plan over the next twelve to eighteen months? Yeah, so we're raising another round of funding right now, actually. Um, the goal is to have that done and finished by May. Um, and then really, so the, so the, the few things we're going to do, really, the, the, the main, still the main priority for us is to grow our user base. But we need to grow our user base with a much better product. So we are going to funnel the app with more impact content, more, more narrative, and more of the investment education that we teach in person and we have on our social media. So the in-app experience will become a lot more richer and referable and more content-driven, highlighting what we stand for as a company, which is basically impact and education. Um, so that's, the, that's how the in-app experience will change. In order to do that, we need to grow the team slightly. So we are 30 now. We'll grow to 19 probably over the next 12 months. And then towards the end of that period, we'll probably look at expanding a little bit into the Nordic and, and Netherlands region, probably, because uh, the appetite for this kind of thing is very pronounced over there. And it's, it's quite easy for us to do that from an operational perspective. So those are the priorities over the next 12 to 18 months. Nice one. Well, uh, Tom, appreciate you giving up some time. Um, I guess for listeners, we should, uh, if, they, if they're not aware of it, we should just let them know that it's T-I-C-K-R. Yeah. Um, that's no, the one. No, no E, because we're trying to be cool. So uh, Brilliant. Well, if you search and download the app, I'm sure Tom will love to hear from you. But for now, uh, thanks for joining us, Tom. Well, thanks for having me on. Thank you. Well, that wraps up our two episodes for the CFA UK FinTech Forum. Uh, thanks again to all my guests who, despite the conference being cancelled, still took the time to join us online to record their interviews. So for this second episode, that was Andrew Eisen, Rehan Islam, Raj Gupta, Stacey English, Bart Van Heeren, and of course, Tom McGillicuddy, who we just heard. Uh, thanks also to the team at CFA UK for inviting us back to interview their speakers. And don't forget, if you want to find out any more information about CFA UK or contact them, uh, then the web address is simply CFA uk.org in the meantime we hope you've got a lot out of this episode and we'd love to hear any comments you may have on the topic of fintech so if you'd like to contribute to the discussion you can do that on our facebook page twitter feed or linkedin and instagram pages which are all linked from the top of the website at csuitepodcast.com where you'll also find all our previous shows and supporting show notes plus links to where you can subscribe for automatic downloads of each episode via your favorite podcast app and if you've enjoyed the podcast please do give us a positive rating and review and finally if If you would like to get in touch with the show, you can do that via the contact form on the website as well, or connect with me on Twitter using at Ross Goldsmith, or you can find me on LinkedIn. But for now, thanks for listening and goodbye.